Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. This is Aviv, and welcome to this podcast episode of Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with leaders, with experts, and with interesting people. And it's all about exploring ideas and insights and practices that can help you create new futures for you, for your family, for your team, for your organization, for your business. In my book, Create New Futures, I made the point of why new futures and the distinction of new versus old futures is that old futures simply recreate old narratives. They reproduce old pain points and recycle old problems and, if you like, rewind all the patterns. And we make the point in the book that we can choose to shape new instead of old futures. And the question is where and how. And the question of where is an interesting one and particularly relevant for this episode today because I propose that we each get to create and you get to create a new future by working both on your interior and exterior worlds. The interior focus is when and where you focus on you, where you work on you. The exterior work is your endeavor to shape your environment, to shape actually your multiple environments that constitute your world. So I propose that you are here, we are each here to endeavor to perfect the world in small and large ways and that this work begins on the inside in in each and with each one of us my core premise in this is that the way we humans create the future is through conversation the conversation that we hold uh, with ourselves uh, of course is the interior conversation and then the conversations that we frame and conduct with the people in our various worlds is the exterior negotiation and dialogue that we have with our environment. And today I am excited to be speaking with Libby Wagner. Libby is one of the only former poetry professors warmly invited into the boardroom. She is a poet, an author, and a speaker and is a trusted advisor for presidents and for CEOs. His work has shaped in a meaningful way the cultures of Fortune 500 clients, companies like the Boeing Company, Nike, Philips, SAP, and Costco. And Libby is the author of the Amazon bestseller, The Influencing Option. The Art of Building a Profit Culture in Business. And you can find her inspiring TED Talk on your voice on YouTube. So um, welcome, Libby. It's uh, great to have you here today. 
Thank you, Aviv. It's my pleasure. And I'm so excited about your new book and all of the ideas and practices that you've included. So I'm excited for our conversation today. How are you? It's been a while since you and I connected. I'm well, actually. And I, I, uh, I, I love the conversational nature of your book. I feel it is perfect timing for this book in the world. I think there is no more important time right now, um, especially in the Western world, for us to hone and um, give ourselves over to really important conversations, perhaps those that we've never had before, both internally and externally. So I think it's the perfect time for us to be talking. Great. You and I initially met at the consulting um, Million Dollar Hall of Fame. And, we did. <laughs> and we've had a, a dialogue on and off through the years. And in the email exchange that we've had uh, last night, uh, just in prep for uh, this conversation today, you wrote something intriguing. And if, if it's all right, I'd like to jump in uh, and start there. Because in your email, what you wrote was, you said, um, I took your advice from your introduction and decided to meander around first instead of starting with Portal 1. The book is arranged in portals rather than chapters. Wouldn't you know I began at the end reading the 39th floor first? I said aloud, oh, Aviv. So first of all, did I get, did I get, did I get the intonation of this right? Or was it different? And what did you mean by that? So for those who are new to the book, The 39th Floor is a great story that Aviv tells about treating himself to a beautiful, fine dinner in a restaurant in San Francisco and his wonderful conversation that he has with the waiter who later reveals that he's a poet and he is supporting his art and his own internal conversation um, with his artistry by waiting tables. And, and so my, my O Aviv was, was probably multi-layered because number one, um, that, that waiter was certainly me at a particular time in my life. I waited tables for a long time, you know, while writing poems and so on before I started my business. And also because I just felt like there were so many little things in there that were, that were perfect. It was, first of all, it was celebrating a satisfying business encounter and knowing that you've made a different in, difference in other people's lives. I think sometimes we race past our successes, which is not a great conversation to have with oneself. And so the fact that you were savoring, um, you know, savoring the relationships you'd built and the changes that had occurred, I thought that was really important. The other thing is that you were willing to engage with your waiter in a very human and um, and I would say both deep and elevated way. You know, sometimes I don't, but I know people who sort of, you know, they go out to eat and they they have the, a person who's serving them and they sort of see them as part of the furniture or something. They don't engage. They miss an opportunity to engage. And um, so I feel like, you know, your openness and your awareness and your noticing, very poet-like, by the way, um, you know, allowed you to have this really rich connection with someone, even though, you know, you never, you may never see him again. And um, I also think that the other reason I said, oh, Aviv, is just that um, 
I love the way that you pay attention. And I know that's why you're good with your clients. And I know that's why your book is asking people to do different sorts of things when they enter in conversation. So that might be more than you wanted out of OAV. But those, those were the things I was thinking, you know, when I was reading that, that section. No, that's uh, very kind uh, of you and I uh, appreciate uh, uh, those, those comments. Um, so I know you have only had a couple of days to glance at the book and um, explore just a few perhaps uh, pages, but is there anything else as we start this exploration today that's um, top of mind, that resonated, that, that uh, you, you'd want to share? Well, I, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying the book. The other thing that Aviv is not saying that he, that was also in my email. And I, 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 I feel like I want to say this too, you know, I have quite a library and I have lots of books and, you know, when you're in a, a, a relatively small, um, you know, collegial community, like we are with, um, with other consultants around the world, you know, we like to celebrate one another's successes in publishing books or, you know, connecting with really important clients, things like that. And so I was delighted to, to, to get your book and to be excited with you and for you. Um, but I don't have time always to read all these books, even though I know there, there's good stuff in there. And, um, but I'm, I'm literally savoring your book. So I just want to say that, um, and I think, you know, Aviv, it's probably my own personal um, taste that you are, you know, I call myself um, a poet pragmatist. You know, I want my clients to have things that work, that, that get them what they want. But I also look at things with an artist's eye and I approach things. And I actually think you do a similar thing. I think that you, you have a well-developed an attuned artist and that that person goes into these very big corporations and facilitates conversations where people are connecting on a soulful level and they, they don't even realize they need to. So, so that's my, my sort of um, intro, but one thing in particular that I loved, it's a whole section on listening, different kinds of listening, levels of listening. I mean, you know, you hear, you hear people all the time, you know, say, oh yeah, we need to improve our listening skills or, oh yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, listening is an essential part of business, but I don't think people really practice it. And particularly what I would call deep listening. And I think you're, you're talking about, you know, whole person listening. And, um, you know, when I, I, I work with my clients and I talk to them about thoughtful change and, um, I'm sure that's very similar to what you're talking about, you know, um, you know, creating new futures, you know, thoughtful change for me includes letting go of things that are no longer working and deep listening. And so I love that section on listening. I'd love for you to talk to me a little bit more about, um, about how, like how that shows up in, in your work and with, with your clients. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, great. The, so for the benefit of people that have not had a chance yet to explore that segment in, in the book, we explore there the four levels of listening. And we also bring this idea of uh, especially level four listening in the context of building a practice of reflection. And the practice of reflection is discussed in the context of becoming champion learners. 
And the idea of becoming champion learners is essential in times of tremendous change. And if we're going to lead and transform and facilitate and enable innovation, we have to be fast learners and deep learners. And to be fast and deep learners, we have to develop a great curiosity and fascination uh, with all sorts of ways of learning. And one of the dimensions of that, one of the most essential dimensions is, is listening. And so I described there that the first level of listening is what people often in the corporate world do when they're on a broad team, large team conference call and they don't need to do anything. So they, they multitask. They are in the background. That's level one listening. You just hear in the background conversation. And level two listening is one that's cerebral and where one very um, methodically, uh, a bit like the attorney in, in the court, will plan the steps such that they only ask the questions that they know uh, exactly what answers that they will get. And so it's a calculated cerebral um, kind of uh, guiding conversation. And some people think that consultative conversations and consultative sales need to be at that level. And I propose that you'd be smart to actually move to at least level three listening, which is um, the idea where you engage limbic work and where you note and pay attention to the emotions and the energy and the inflection. Um, and are able to take these cues and customize your engagement and your conversation accordingly. And level four listening is really the idea of whole person listening or sometimes talked uh, in the idea of listening with presence. Essentially, when there is nothing else in the world where you are so fully present in the here and now, exactly as perhaps we are now in this conversation with each other, so this, this fourth level of listening, which I propose is whole person listening, is a practice, is a discipline, and is a concentrated, uh, agenda-free, focused presence. And perhaps the most profound gift we can give each other. Mm-hmm. And I propose, somebody can say, okay, that's great, I appreciate what you're saying, but how and what is the relevance of this in business? Well, I propose that when you lead a team, sometime, if you can be for 10, 15 minutes in your one-on-one discussion with your direct reports in that mode, there is so much more value that you will create than in a couple of hours of uh, shallow level multitasking mm-hmm. type conversation. Yeah let alone with the important people in, in our lives. So, so that's uh, how uh, I came about into defining and, and uh, coining this idea of level four listening. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I, we're, we're, ex- we're exactly on the, the same page, to use a tired metaphor. But um, I think that what's so interesting about what you're doing and what you're talking about here is that 
um, you know, for, for people like you and I, maybe because that's a practice that we cultivate in our lives, we think we might think um, mistakenly that it's no big deal or that everyone does this or it's common sense, but it's not. And I think that the way that we've grown up in business, not, not you and I, we, but, you know, we in general, we've grown up in business, is that we devalue those level three, level four listening, um, not only skills and practices, but, but even um, the outcomes of them um, to our detriment and expense. And it's not about... Um, you know, I always say that one of the reasons I think that I'm good at what I do, even though, you know, there's really no logical reason for someone who is a poet and, and has been a poetry professor to go into businesses. Like, it doesn't make sense on the surface, right? Um, because I don't have my MBA from Harvard or, or whatever it is that we value when we're thinking about um, consulting um, people in business. Um, but I often think, you know, they don't actually need any more MBAs in that particular skill. They need these kinds of skills, which allow the whole human to show up in an interaction. And those, that noticing, because I think deep listening is also about noticing. It's noticing those inner cues, being able to um, discern tone of voice. It's being, you know, all those kinds of subtleties that are so powerful um, that's how a poet, and, so, and other artists too, but that's how a poet walks around in the world. The reason I'm a good poet is I notice things. I notice using you know, sensory perception and intuition and things like that. And those sorts of skills are skills that leaders who differentiate themselves, who are able to you know, have one planted in the current and one and their eyes looking out to the horizon, um, they cultivate those skills and need to cultivate those skills. And you're absolutely right, Eve. it's a practice. You can't go to a class or a workshop or even read a book and say, oh, good, I'm, I'm, wow, all right, I get it. Like you actually have to consciously practice. Completely um, agreeing with you there, Libby. And, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you today because it's for you, as a poet, it's more than listening. It's your love of language and the power of words. And in my work, too, language is central. Mm -hmm. For example, the two impellers of my work are the art and science of conversation choreography, which is really about how you design conversations that enable a group of very smart people to escape the trap of collective stupidity and to liberate and actualize their collective potential to create results. So that's the second impeller, and I frame that first mm -hmm. of, of my work. And I'd say the first impeller is the science of learning and the art of coaching and teaching and the kind of art that accelerate uh, growth and development and the transfer of knowledge and insights in ways that enable quantum leaps of understandings and facilitate breakthroughs. Mm. And these two fields, that is the conversation choreography and the curation of breakthrough learning and the coaching and teaching that enable that, in both these uh, 
activities in both these sciences, if you like, the, the language is the central element. So that makes me very interested, very curious about the language of leadership, the language of teaching and coaching, the language that enables us to create compelling meaning, and how we use and deploy language to inspire and to create movement and results. And so it, it brings me to uh, want to ask you about the place of language in your work. And how do you, especially that you, you position this, you're not hiding, you are the corporate poet. So how do you use language in your work and how do you use this medium that you have developed to, to lift ideas and words and insights to prominence through and with poetry? Well, that's a really great question and I'm gonna answer it and I'm gonna respond in two ways. Um, but first, I want to point out something that you did, that you just did in, your, in the language that you were using that I think is a great example. And um, what happens often, at least in, you know, sort of like the Western canon of business literature, is we have mirrored kind of the oh, I don't know, the sign of the times or our need for... I, I, it's really interesting because I, I noticed that the, um, the four levels of, of listening is in my, my, my current favorite chapter or my current favorite portal, which is Portal 5, which is about going slowly, which we should have a whole other podcast on, by the way. Indeed. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, but um, we in business uh, literature, which then translates into business language and business practices, is we have become like fast food addicts. Um, cheap language, cheap. You know, there's five tips and seven steps, and 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 uh, it's the same language sort of regurgitated over and over and over again, and it's it's boring and it doesn't touch us or move us and. And we think it's good enough. And, you know, that's my prejudice. So, so I, think, I think we must resist that. That's first of all. If you want to talk about leaders that are going to create new futures, we have to step out of the ordinary language that, that, that is sort of commonplace right now. I think that's really important. And, uh, and we can talk about how to do that. But I want to point out what you did. So you were talking about two sciences. And the way that you described it, you said you wanted... You had chore a conversation choreography and the curation of breakthrough learning. Like who says that? Not very many people. And it's because you have a particular facilitation with language. And what happens when you say things like conversation choreography or designing conversation choreography, all of a sudden the ear and the emotion perks up because now I see a dance or I see something that seems like, um, you know, like out of the ordinary, when we're talking about conversation, we're talking about business conversations, choreography, what, you know, so it piques my interest. And it's, and even if I wouldn't call myself an artist, which many people in business don't, I, although I think that's incorrect, but they, they hear that and they think, oh, wow, that's so curious. Choreography, like, what does he mean by that? So you're inviting curiosity just in using one word you know same thing with you know a curation of breakthrough learning that's very different than train people teach people stuff 
you know, it's very, very different. And so I think that just your own example of the way that you're using language in your speaking and in your writing, that is modeling um, ways that we can use language to create this, um, this breakthrough way of connecting. So that's the first thing I'll say. And I just want to pause to see if you, like what, um, like what are your observations about what I just shared about the sort of fast food language versus your purposeful use of that beautiful language actually to talk about what you, what you mean by these two sciences? The, the essence of what you said there, Libby, for me is that we both feel passionate, defiantly passionate against this idea of commoditized language and commoditization of ideas and concepts. Yes, we do um, operate and, and live in a world where everything wants to be scaled and to scale, there is a commoditizing element. I, I think the work you do, I think the work I do, is about endeavoring to take people into new spaces, into new ways of thinking, into new ways of seeing both the challenges and the potential that uh, is in front of them. And how do you do it? You begin by defiantly resisting the commoditization of language and through that, the commoditization of people. Because every individual and every person uh, on your team, in your organization, is, is a unique individual and potential. I, I'm working now on a uh, newsletter and I... The, the, the working title was why, why is it that most organizations only use 40 or in the good case 60% of organizational capacity? Well, one of the reasons is because we commoditize our people, we commoditize our talent. We are not engaging the, the brilliance of our workforce. Mm -hmm. And how do you change that? How do you pivot? You, you begin by engaging in the deeper level listening and by creating the ecologies and the climates in, inside of which people can thrive in a whole new way. And that requires that we defy, uh, we are defiant with the, the commoditization of language. Yeah, I, lo I love how you're saying that. Um, um, and because I feel like that's, it really is the detriment to a few things in, you know, in, in the way that we go about our work lives. I mean, it's, I think organizations lose out when they commoditize people and language. I think individuals do. We lose engagement. We lose um, the potential for creative um, uh, and innovative solutions and ideas. I mean, we literally just cut ourselves off. And um, so I think this idea of resisting that and pushing against um, the, the quick, the quick, the fast and the dirty, you know, I, I just think they're just, it, that's still, that's still new. It, it really is. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I'm very curious, of course, to, um, to talk to you about, um, you know, how, um, you know, how your, your clients um, willingly, willingly take the risks because I think that when you ask, here's the thing, when you ask people to shift out of the sort of massive norm movement 
you know, towards this idea of commoditization, it's risky and it takes courage and they could fail. They could, you know, things could get messy, you know, having a real conversation in an organization is messy and it takes a lot of emotional fortitude on the leader's part to hold the space for that conversation. And it creates a particular tension, which I would go back to language and poetry. One of the reasons that poetry is so powerful and uh, is because it bypasses what I would call the strategic mind, the mind that's trying to figure things out. And it goes straight to the heart of meaning. And that's why, and, and, and again, I know I keep saying, you know, it's true for other kinds of art too, but particularly poetry because its medium is language that you can, you, I can, this is your back to your question of like, what do I do? You know, I can go into a room where I'm going to facilitate a meeting for the day, basically facilitate a conversation. And I begin with a poem. Um, like uh, I have a poem called trust, which is really about allowing things to unfold. And sometimes I begin with that one. Um, and the metaphor is about climbing a mountain and seeing the sunrise and how, you know, Gosh, without our permission, the sun rises every day. So far, it has not let us down, and we have nothing to do with it. And so, you know, um, I might use that metaphor or that language to create a particular environment, a particular um, uh, climate, like you're talking about, and, and spaciousness where everyone knows immediately, wow, this is going to be a different kind of conversation today. She didn't get the PowerPoint out, <laughs> you know, like, like, wow, the air feels different in here. We're, this is different. And I think, you know, I think that's one of the ways that language can very quickly, you know, just completely change the climate that you're in. Here is one other dimension of that. And that relates to, to your question um, back at me, which is, so how do I, bring this to the clients that I work with. So here is another nuance to this idea of focused interest in the, the power of language and how we use words. Because one of the problems that teams face is that they use the same words, but unless, unless they unpack and define what these words mean for them and how they choose to act on these ideas, they quickly create misunderstandings or even breakdowns mm, mm-hmm. because people bring and attach different context and different meaning to certain words. And, and this is something that occurs at all levels of business and perhaps obviously even more significantly in the most important relationships that people have. And here is, here is just one Example. Let me give you a, one example from the leadership and the organizational space. So in my work with executives, I help teams develop outcome-based thinking and outcome-based communication to cultivate greater clarity around outcomes. What I mean by that is to, to cultivate greater clarity around the results that they are working Uh, to create. And what happens is that many people come to the table with activity-based language. They talk about what they do, 
they don't always find it easy to pivot into framing what they do in terms of the outcomes that they're working to create. Because there, okay. is, a, there is a rewiring of the, the mental model that's required if you're going to begin to think and converse and communicate with outcome focus. Mm-hmm. So even, even when they embrace the importance of outcomes, I see time and time and again that many speak interchangeably about inputs and outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and they find it even hard to define and differentiate organizational outcomes from business outcomes. As an example, agreeing on a set of priorities and on the way to achieve these priorities is an important organizational outcome. But it's an organizational outcome. Acquiring 10 major new accounts and growing market share by 15% is a business outcome. We need both. What's important if we're going to create a cosmology of meaning and map the, the structure of our dialogues such that we can accelerate. This is why some of the teams that I've worked with, people said to me, uh, Libby, we were able to, in three days, achieve the, the, the kind of decisions and agreements and alignment that would otherwise, otherwise take us three months or six months or we will never get to. One of the reasons is because we are able to build a cosmology of meaning that accelerates dramatically that sense of alignment. So uh, is the poetry in that? I, I, I don't know. You are the, the professor um, and the poet, and you will tell me whether there is poetry. For me, the, the, the lightnings of energy, when people connect ideas and see the, the rationalization of their effort and are able to converge in a profound way, there is poetry in that. There is brilliance in that. It's not just about the profit. It's about how a complex system can develop coherence and therefore can dramatically accelerate the outcomes that they're working to create. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, um, I wrote an article once that said, you know, the problem with the bottom line is it's at the bottom. You know, like it's a consequence of of, uh, you know, other kinds of activities of an organization. But I want to go back to your, your um, question about like, is this poetry? Absolutely. And, and so, and I want to, you know, sort of like define a couple of things that I use that, that help with this notion of artistry, which I actually think you're talking about in a lot of ways. One time I was getting ready to, I work with a lot of engineers, which is really fun for me. And, um, because they like to find things that work, you know, and so they have these very curious minds and, and, um, and they're really kind of fun. And I always um, joke around with them and cause if they don't know me yet, you know, I always say, well, you know, we're going to do this and this, and then we'll have a group hug at the end, which terrifies them. You know, they think that a poet is going to make them do touchy feely weird things. But one day I went in to work with this new group of people and I wrote up on a chart, um, noticing, courage, remembering our humanity and language. And I said to them, when do you use these in your work? And of course, you know, there's a little bit of a pause. And then they're like, well, you know, always, you know, all the time. 
And, um, and I said, these are the same skills and practices that a poet uses. These are the same things. This is what we do to create art in the world. And I want to sort of break a myth right now that you might think you're not artistic or you don't have an artistry. And the way that I define artistry, and I think this, this is important for the organizational conversation that you're talking about, is I believe that artistry means that you take your, you honor your inheritance and your inheritance is very wide reaching. It's not just, you know, something you got from your mother or your, your primary culture or, you know, or so on, but it's all of your experiences, all of your teachers, all of your, you know, like I'm thinking about you right now, you know, you, you grew up in Israel, you, you know, you, you had to take on a leadership role in your kibbutz, you, you became a fighter pilot, you, you know, you, you, you're a swimmer, you know, all of these things are part of your experiences and your inheritance. And you take all of that and you create something new out of it in a conversation with a client, in the way that you're interacting with your family and in that conversation you have with that waiter in San Francisco. And that becomes the still point of your artistry. You're doing something with what you've been given. And in an organization, part of our artistry is to do something with what we've been given, you know, whether it's the current marketplace or the current political system or a new product or, you know, the people that came before us, the leaders that came before us, their failures and their successes. Like all of that gives us this opportunity to create this artistry and the language that we use to engage in it. Like it's the only, well, it's not the only medium we have because we do have visual, right? But it's the, it's the, it's the way that we connect human to human in live time is through this exchange of, of language. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. It, it, it does. Uh, say just a little more about this idea, which I've heard you speak to before, which is that you say that poetry requires courage mm. and that therefore it can inspire courage in leaders. Tell me more about courage. I'm, I'm interested in that. Obviously, we all know that Churchill once said, I believe it was Churchill who said that Courage uh, was the first uh, virtue, the first quality that you needed to develop because all uh, other virtues, all other qualities needed courage. Mm-hmm. But I know you mean courage in, in a particular kind of way. So how, how do you mean courage in the poetry sense and in the leadership sense? Well, I love this topic because um, when I look at the word courage, I am also paying attention to the root of that word, which is cour, and in French that is heart. And so things that require our courage matter to us. It has a, it has a heart connection. It matters. It takes courage to go and have that conversation with the person you love. It takes courage to... to speak truth to the top in your organization. It takes courage to show up as a leader and say, yeah, we're not going in that direction anymore and here's why and I need your support. It, it, in, and those conversations matter. And what happens, I think, in organizations, and go, going back to this commoditization, is we spend all this time on conversations that don't actually matter to us. And so they don't require courage. 
and and people can be leaders can get lazy and they can you know get on that proverbial gerbil wheel and it and it it is um exhausting and you know soul sucking and all that kind of thing now the relationship to courage and poetry is um you know donald hall who um is um you know kind of one of the solid american um poets you know he said that poetry is saying the unsayable and i love that for a lot of reasons because if you think about it language even in its most beautiful exacting forms is is inexact in other words you know and and all we have to do is like think about a time when we wanted to express someone something to someone we really cared about and even if we're really good at language we're going to struggle with it a little bit and we're going to really try because we want we want to be understood we want to connect and so um so this idea that um we are using courageous language to say the unsayable to say the thing that needs to be said um i work um closely with the poet david white who um who wrote a book in 1999 called um the heart aroused preserving the soul of corporate america and that sort of catapulted him into the conversation about about you know what's happening in organizations that is you know basically draining the life out of people and um and one of the things that um you know that we often talk about is this idea that you know there are so many conversations that are just not worth having anymore in in organizations and this idea that we must they're dying for somebody to speak the truth right they're just dying for it you know i mean that's that and that takes courage Indeed. so whether it's in the in the form of a poem or it's a conversation that needs to happen in that organization it's a risk people need to take and leaders leaders it, like it's non-negotiable they they must do it very um uh, interesting um and i don't know if you are um if you look at words and the 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 formulation of words and and the letters in in the word and and whether you play with it if you do um the word courage contain the combination of the two words our cage and it takes a lot of courage to break out of our cage yeah. and uh, this this um <laughs> this is an indication of the idea that polarities always exist in the same space and so mm. if, you, if 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 the word courage is about breaking out of what uh, holds us back it is about breaking out of our cage mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps that's why the, these two words um, are contained in this word right. here is mm-hmm. here is another example for me of where courage plays out i've realized years ago that the evidence of development is when you notice that you are working on a new perhaps more interesting perhaps even more difficult and complex problems rather than repeating and recycling the same problems time and time and time again so for myself i've coined the idea that development is not development is not in solving all the contradictions of life but rather it is in learning to hold and contain the greater contradiction of living mm. 
And for example, being able to hold and contain the, the non-linear nature of the human experience, because the non-linear nature of the human experience provides splendid contradictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, here is an example, maybe, of what I mean by such contradiction, because in this case, my point is that what often appears as contradiction only appears to be a contradiction because we lack the context and the depth and we listen to language in what you can perhaps uh, describe as Flatlandia. That's the country where there is no depth, no context, and that operates only uh, at a two-dimensional level, missing the third, the fourth, and, and the fifth dimension. And if you ask me what, what are these other <laughs> dimensions, well, obviously, the third dimension is the dimension of depth. Uh, I do believe that the fourth dimension is often related to as the dimension of time, but that we ought to add the fifth dimension, and that fifth dimension is about learning and about growth. And if we needed and wanted to, by the way, add the sixth and the seventh dimension, that they are perhaps could be described with sisters' synchronicity and serendipity, and, and the signs of um, sympathetic uh, resonance and spontaneous emergence, which is what, for example, explains the, the idea and the phenomenon of spontaneous healing, um, and is the essence of emergent conversations where we listen to um, the, the energy and the permission of the conversation. But I'm, I'm jumping ahead, and, and what I wanted was to give you an example of an apparent contradiction where there are two mental models that clash and contradict, but they only do so, they only conflict when we look at them without context. So here is my example. So to scale the business, and we, you and I work with large businesses, they need to scale, they need to um, accelerate the impact that they are trying to create in the marketplace. So to scale the business, people need to try to do the least amount of work necessary to produce the expected result. That's the definition of efficiency. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that, if you can achieve the expected, the needed results in two hours, why work 20 hours? Makes no uh, sense to do the, the 20 hours work. It makes a lot of sense to accomplish it in two hours if you can. But you just talked about artistry. And in the various fields of the arts, the best performers follow a completely different role. Instead of doing the least amount of work to achieve efficiency, they do what I call, they do the unnecessary work. You listen to some of the greatest actors and actresses, and they describe how they prepare to embody and inhabit a character perhaps some historical figure, and they describe how they search for any possible clue. And they will spend hours researching and learning the character because they can never know when and where and how they will find the spark of brilliance, that connective genius 
that produce the transformative alchemy of great acting. So both these completely different, seemingly conflicting mental models have a place to scale a global business you need to simplify, to automate, to digitize, so you can do the least amount of work necessary to deliver results and to produce mastery at a craft and, and deliver a memorable performance, you do the, the so-called unnecessary work. Mm. That means doing work that no one sees, there is no glory to doing this work, but you do this work out of love and the practice uh, of devotion for your craft and for what you believe in and what you're trying to accomplish. And these two mental models or operating systems, if you like, exist at different level mm. and inside a different context. Mm -hmm. This means that we cannot apply the same rule or the same language in every situation. Because this is, again, as I said, it's a non-linear universe. It's mm -hmm. a differential universe. And language and mode of engagement must consider situational and contextual circumstance you're in. So somebody can say, but so how do you apply this insight in your work? Well, here is a simple example. In a certain coaching situations, I apply the first rule because the point is, how can we get the impact that we hope to create in the fastest, most economical way? And then there are other coaching situations where the client loves if we can get off topic, a bit like you and I are meandering today and explore seemingly unrelated tangents because the invisible design of that kind of conversation allows for the emergent logic and presence and guidance, if you like, of the conversation to, to reveal itself as we go, much like surfing a wave. Mm. So That's the, beautiful. Yeah, so the pragmatic insight for leaders is we must customize our conversation and our communication situationally mm. um, and listen and observe what might be the best way for that moment in time and for, and for the need you're serving. Yeah, that, okay, so for, that's beautiful that you, you articulated indeed a splendid contradiction. Um, for business, for business leaders. And I love the idea of, you know, following the wave and knowing, and, and here's the thing, if you're not present, you can't, you can't, you don't know where to go. You don't know whether the conversation needs to be in that efficiency realm, or you don't know whether it needs to be in the artistry realm. If you're, if you're just uh, sort of, you know, taking the same steps, using the same language, not cultivating your, you know, insatiable curiosity, not present, you'll miss it. You'll miss the whole thing. Because, Libby, I've never been to your poetry class before you decided to move into um, business and translate the unique skill and experience. And as you said, in the inheritance that you brought from that experience and bring the, the courage and the formulation of it to new application and, and usage in the, the boardroom and, and with executive teams to try to help them 
reshape and re-energize the culture of their organizations. Uh, I wonder if um, I could, as, as we uh, bring this to close in, in a few minutes, if I can um, borrow then this occasion to go right into poetry for a minute and ask you about those words, famous um, words uh, of Frost that for me always been very intriguing and particularly those eternal words where he said, two roads diverged in a wood and I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me what these words uh, meant and what this imagery meant for you and how you are in your own way choosing the, the road less traveled and how that has made a difference for you and uh, for the people in your life? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And, um, you know, Frost's iconic poem is, it's important for a lot of reasons. It's anthologized for a lot of reasons um, because of um, that, that, that innate kernel of wisdom in it and also um, its ability to connect with almost every human being. Like there's no, there's, there's no human being who will not be faced with the road, you know, the road less traveled. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's a rite of passage and it, it's, it's a common human thing. And I'll, I'll say a couple of things about it. I think, you know, what makes that a good poem is that even though it has some um, specific imagery, which is also something, a quality of a great poem, very specific imagery. Um, it's not a self-indulgent story that Frost is talking about a time when he had to decide between choice A and choice B. Because if it was, we wouldn't care about that poem. And it wouldn't be important years and years later, and you and I wouldn't be talking about it. But what he does is, he recognizes something in the human experience that transcends his own little life and is part of the bigger uh, sense of human life. And, um, and I think that the reason we love this poem is that secretly inside of all of us, we want to go down that road less traveled. We want to go into the, into that future that we're trying to create, even though we don't know the, a guaranteed outcome, because we are curious and growing creatures. Like I always say, you know, we, we can't keep ourselves from creating, actually. And when we do, when we try to keep ourselves from creating, we, we, we sort of kill ourselves. We become like the empty shell of us. So when I think about um, Frost's poem, and about the, you know, the road less traveled, you know, it took me, an inspired path is not linear. So no doubt this, um, you know, the path in the woods here with all of the debris strewn across and the, we, you know, we might have to have a, a walking stick to get through or whatever it is, you know, the metaphor. Um, it's also not a straight path. I'm telling you that he doesn't talk about it, but it's not a straight path. It's not a linear path. It doesn't make any sense 
that um, I would have um, left uh, academia. Um, I had a secure tenure. I was tenured, which essentially, you know, is like a job for life. Um, but there was something about the horizon that I felt like was beckoning me. And I felt like I had reached my creative peak and I could have gone on doing what I was doing forever. Um, it was comfortable. I was not unhappy, but I had a sense that there was something more and I didn't even know what that something more was. And I feel feel like that's a common human thing. And it doesn't mean everyone needs to, you know, abandon their corporate jobs, you know, or anything like that. I think, I think the road less traveled is different for every person. But I also think, I mean, you were talking about this idea of the splendid contradiction. I like to call it a beautiful question. And a beautiful question is expansive and provocative and inviting. And it has no simple answer to it. Just like a splendid contradiction you know, it, it just like, it doesn't make sense, but it invites us in. And an exhaustive question, contradictory to a beautiful question, is one that we're like, we're just tired of. It's like, oh God, not this question again. And so, so that beautiful question of the road less traveled is, is that idea of um, curiosity and wonder and curating learning and all the things that you're talking about. And so for me, it's about how can we look at those outcomes that we desire in an organization. How can we look at higher performance, better, um, you know, better market share, more innovative ideas? How can we look at that in a really human way, which I believe will differentiate us and I will, be, will also be more satisfying on a deep level, like you experienced when you were sitting in that restaurant after your good working day in San Francisco. Indeed, indeed. So I will distill your commentary on this uh, poetry words, poetic words from uh, Frost by proposing the following idea, which is that um, poetry and courage and leadership is in harvesting and converting the personal in a way, converting the personal into something that's universal, as you said, that anybody can identify and resonate with. There is poetry in that, there is courage in that, mm -hmm. there is leadership in that. And, and perhaps, uh, and perhaps we, we can mid-flight uh, leave this uh, for today. I, I know we, we will want to continue and perhaps uh, do part two and part three, uh, but perhaps uh, a good place to uh, land uh, this uh, discussion, this exploration today in, in creating new futures uh, with you, Livy. Thank you, Aviv. It was my pleasure and delightful.